Welcome back, everybody. This is Todd Sylvester with the Todd Sylvester Inspires Belief Cast. Uh, today we have Dave Hendrickson on our show today. Thanks for being here bright and early. Thank you. Yeah, Thank I'm excited. Uh, Dave has an incredible story. He's been through a lot. He's overcome a lot. And I'm just excited to have him share his story with all of you. As you know, um, I call this a belief cast because the power of our beliefs dictate the way we behave and the way we uh, do things in our lives. And uh, Dave has a very powerful belief system. And uh, you guys are going to get to know that soon. So thank you and welcome to the show. Like Good I to said, be here. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> it's bright and early. <laughs> yeah, no, I like being up. I hate waking up, but I like being up. Yeah, me yeah. too. Me too. Well, let's uh, let's get uh, a little background on you. Let's let our listeners know a little bit about you, a little you know where you grew up, kind of thing. And yeah, yeah, I uh, I grew up here in Salt Lake, um, over in Mill Creek. That's now officially a city, I guess. But um, um, born and raised Salt Lake City. Um, grew up in a good family. Good. Uh-huh. Um, definitely a 1970s, 1980s culture. We were outside all the time. We had a really big yard and played in the neighborhood and um, just really didn't realize, I think at the time, how how wonderful of a life I, I had. I mean, right. um, we didn't have a lot of money, but we were um, we didn't ever think about that. We just had a good time, played outdoors, fished a lot with my dad, fly fished growing up. Um, and family was a really big, important thing with, with, my, with my extended family. So okay. I grew up going to my grandma's, not every Sunday, but she was just around the corner. And we have quite a few cousins, of course, and um, saw them, got to know them. Um, and those ties are still still in force today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, you, you're in the culture of playing outside. Yeah. It's a little different now, it seems like, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's um, <laughs> it's a little scary for me raising kids. Um, but I try to I try to be deliberate and yeah. get them outside and force myself to go do things. So your dad to three kids, correct? Yeah. Jack and Charlie. Ben, Jack and Charlie. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. What are their ages? The twins, Ben and Jack are nine. Oh, they're twins. Okay. They're nine years old. (laughs) And then Charlie is uh, four. Four. Going on nine. Right on. He thinks he's a twin. (laughs) We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, More about your kids for sure. Um, So you grew up, um, is that, did you go to Skyline? Olympus. Olympus. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Olympus High School. So, That's a great school. Yeah, yeah, we very it. cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit about growing up. You said you had kind of you know good childhood. Didn't really realize how good you had it. Yeah, which I think most of us kind of feel that yeah, way yeah. sometimes. Yeah, take it for granted. Yeah, certainly in in white America, <laughs> that's how, <laughs> how it is. Unfortunately, um, in fact, you know, going going on a I served a, a sabbatical, if you will, LDS mission in Florida, and, and I served most of the time in the inner cities of of uh, South Florida. And, that was a great eye-opening experience. I really got to see not just what I grew up with, but um, kind of what people have to go through. They're just born into. It's pretty yeah. stark. Um, right. That was amazing for my just my worldview. Um, not that I didn't know that it was out there, but I didn't actually know what it was like. So yeah, poverty and, and whatnot. But I didn't answer your question. What was your question? No, it's all right. Um, just uh, talking about, growing up you know in general yeah i mean we we had obviously family around i had i had a good friend system um when i was uh in junior high when you're coming of age i always had good friends in my immediate neighborhood at least a at least a handful of them and um 
when I was coming of age and when I was 14, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. It's an inflammatory bowel disease. Basically, um, yeah, it's hard to hard to have a normal life as a little little teenager. Yeah, you mentioned like give a little sort of background on that because you also mentioned to me that you know that was a really it was a blow to your confidence at that yeah. age. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about that. And well, I think little boys, young boys, are they're you tease each other, and that's pretty normal. So I yeah. thought that my friends would just I mean that was like the best target for for boys to have yeah. something to involve you know, poop or whatever. And, <laughs> um, so I kind of retracted from all my friends and I'm a really social person. And so it was very out of character. And obviously my mom was trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And, um, we got, uh, tied in with a specialist, Janet Arnsberger, who was amazing. She was an incredible doctor, made me feel comfortable. Uh-huh. Um, and just, I remember, I remember going to these, these uh, visits, if you will, and she'd ask me how I was doing, and there was this sort of inability to tell her that I really was sick. So I wanted to see myself as healthy, but I was not healthy. I mean, I lost thirty pounds in a few months, and you go from one twenty down to ninety as a little kid. You're you're yeah. in bad shape, right? So yeah, but I would I would lie essentially and tell her, no, I'm good, and I think that's I learned later in in my schooling that that's. That's somewhat typical of teenage kids with chronic illness. Yeah. But they don't want to face it. And I certainly did not want to because I had a, I don't know, I just didn't want to be sick. Sure. So, Did you have friends that were teasing you? Did they find no. out? Did they? No, when they found out. Kinda... In fact, the one buddy who was probably the most ruthless with teasing, um, when he found out, he, he was like, why wouldn't you tell me? He was sort of confused. So it was good. I mean, from then on, I, I just made it a joke growing up with right. my buddies and you know the girls of course didn't know you could never let them know but my buddies knew and it wasn't a big deal wow good yeah um you said it was kind of a blow to your confidence did it affect other areas in your life did you did you not I, do very good in school did you yeah I th- you mentioned I you isolated and i don't it was during the summer so i got diagnosed i think in like april or june or somewhere in that range okay um i don't remember per se but i i know now that it had to had to affect the other parts of my life without right. me realizing it for sure yeah um and i wouldn't say that i deliberately suppressed it i just i don't know i just tried to keep going just, yeah yeah great you said you were more of a social kid did you yeah. eventually get to that point where yeah yeah that fall as soon as really as soon as my close buddies told me i was an idiot for not hanging out basically they were like why aren't you hanging out with us yeah what's going on yeah um that's all <laughs> you know, 13, 14 year olds care about. But, um, once, once they knew and they kind of asked me why I didn't tell them and it was fine. Yeah. Yeah. I I just hung out again and was social again. Great. So, um, so, uh, good childhood, you know, you make it through high school and you said you served a mission in Florida Mm -hmm. that opened up your eyes about, uh, to how a lot of people go through. They're kind of born into some really difficult situations. Yeah. 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 How did you grow from that? Do you think? Um, I just, I mean, I still am connected to those people. There's family, family down there that I'm still connected to. I talk to several times a year and I think it just helped me see, I mean, on one hand, it's cool to see how a lot of them have come out of that poverty and made a life for themselves. It's, it's really inspiring. I don't think I've ever really told them the kids that, um, cause the kids were all in this particular family. were all like 
teenagers down to about seven or eight years old. Right. There was five or six boys that were actually being fostered by this woman that I had met with my, my missionary companion. And, um, I just think it, it, you can't learn that stuff by reading about it. You have to just be in it. And yeah. I, um, what did I learn? I think a lot of empathy for sure. Like really empathizing with hardship yeah. and it really shaped me. And I think prepared me for later struggles in my life without me ever even realizing it. Even, even maybe until I just said that, to be honest. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, just to watch people just slog it out every day and, and, and find happiness and be happy despite their circumstances. They, they'd complain, of course, but right. they were happy. It was, it was a fun time to be in the ghetto. I mean, <laughs> you'd walk down the street and you could hear, a, you could hear where barbecues were happening, happening. And I mean, we stood out like a sore thumb, white oh, boys and <laughs> what y'all doing? Y'all insurance man. And we'd just say, no, we're, 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 missionaries for jesus we would just say that because yeah. you know, go through the whole long name of the right. OBS church mm -hmm. was you'd lose them and lose anybody in my opinion but we yeah. just we just said yeah we're missionaries for for jesus christ and they would just welcome you in come on in and i just love that about um about black american or african-american culture is just the generally speaking the the community feel that they they bring yeah. and you'll you'll find it in latin american culture and other other cultures, but I experienced it firsthand in that culture. And that was, my family was very inclusive, but they weren't inviting random people in, not because they didn't right. want to, but there just weren't random people walking on the street to, sure. to invite in. So it's just right. different environments. So, you know, we would go into these barbecues and just meet people. And sometimes we'd become friends with them. Sometimes we'd never talk to them again. And yeah. there's no skin off their back. They were just yeah. laughing that was two white boys there eating <laughs> grits and collard greens for the first time in their life. Yeah, they're like, who are these guys? They just, yeah, they love to introduce their foods. And, yeah. Yeah, I loved it. I miss it. <laughs> yeah. So. Right on. So um, so you come home from a mission. Um, let's let's jump ahead just a little bit. Uh, yeah. Talk about when you met your wife. and. Uh, yeah, so I spent... It's, her name was Julie, correct? Julie, okay. yeah. Julie Jackson. She went to Skyline um, uh, neighboring high school, rival high school to Olympus. And, um, yeah, definitely a rival, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she, you know, I knew who Julie was in high school. Um, you know who the cute girls are. They don't, mm -hmm. they don't really necessarily know who you are, but, um, and it's funny. I, we probably should have crossed paths earlier. We used to talk about that, that I knew girls in her neighborhood. Um, I had dated a couple girls in her neighborhood, ironically, just throughout the high school years. And so, I had been to college, I had graduated, and I was kind of um, calloused a little bit from dating. I mean, I had dated really wonderful women, but we were all kids. And so it's it's tough to date when you're in your early 20s. You're still developing as an adult. And, right. Um, and they turned out to be really, really great women and great wives and great career women. But um, at the time, I was really frustrated, and so I just kind of retracted from dating which was, was out of character. I like, I like to date. I like to be social. And, yeah. um, I bought a house and I met Julie in the process right when I had bought my house. And I remember thinking, um, kind of like, Oh, she'll be fun. She's cute. And that's really, I did not think like people say, Oh, you know, I knew when I met my wife, I just was like, she's hot. I'll, I'll hang out with her. <laughs> it was really base. Like, right. 
but um, I guess that's where it starts. And um, we got to know each other. We met at the singles ward, which for whatever reason I was, the singles ward is, um, it's essentially a congregation for single adults, young single adults. Right. If you're not, a, if you're not part of LDS faith, but so that's where we met. We met at church and now I think it's a great story. At the time I was a little embarrassed and which is so silly, but I thought, oh, I don't want to be meeting my wife at the singles ward. I didn't want to be status quo. And I've always kind of had that little, I don't want to want to be like everybody else. I want to be different, but that was just immaturity. And so we met and, um, we dated and I was working on my house and I kind of retracted from my normal courting of a girl. I just kind of took her for, for granted. Right. And so she broke up with me and she has a backstory as to what was going on in her life, but she was, she was ready to get married. She was ready to get married. She was, she was, um, she was bent on having kids and being married and building a life. So she pretty much gave me an ultimatum, moved on. So you were slowing her down. <laughs> I was slowing her down. And I, yeah. and I think, um, I remember when she broke up with me, I cried pretty hard that night and I was surprised at how, how sad I was, but, um, I didn't know the backstory, but she was just distraught and she was basically going out on a limb on a limb. Like I'm going to break up with him. And if he, it's either going to work or I'm going to move on. She was ready to move on though, clearly. Right. But she was consulting with her friend and, um, her friend Heidi and with her brother and her brother also had cystic fibrosis. So I'll talk about that in a minute, but right. he was like, he was very confident and, um, just even handed about how things were going to work out for her with me. And I didn't know any of this, but consequently we, we did end up getting back together. Um, we didn't spend more than about a week apart from that time that she broke oh, up. Okay. So we saw her a week later. We didn't get together for about a month. Um, and I just noticed her, her loyalty to me, despite she was moving on. She was going on dates and, but she was very, um, she wasn't unkind to me. She was very good to me. Right. Even though, but so, yeah, so we got together and we got married and, um, I, I, I mean, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say it was, it was a tough decision before I made it because right. she was sick. She was born with cystic fibrosis. It's a lung and pancreatic disease. And I mean, statistically she was going to pass. And I was sort of like, man, I, I really like this girl. She, we're aligned from right. a, a spiritual standpoint. We're attracted to one another. We have fun together and we have similar humor and whatnot. And I, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I've had people tell me, yeah, you were, you were asking me, should I do it? Should I not? And I think deep down I knew I was going to be with her, but I just had to get my head around it. Like, okay, what's that going to be like? Right. You know, being yeah, worrying about what's, what's going to happen down, down the road. Well, yeah, just thinking about what it will be like if she does die. Yeah. Once I made the decision though, I was sort of like, and I think I, I think I may have created some naivete in my, the people around me, but I was like, I think she's going to be here for four years. And I just put my sights on that. And, um, I'm really glad I did, even though she died because she was that way. Yeah. And so it just allowed us to enjoy our life. And it wasn't like in quotations, she'll be here for 40 years. We really believed that she would be here for 40 years. And hearing this, somebody might think, oh, that's so sad. He was so naive. But no, I knew full well that she could die in two. 
but you know, once I made that decision, it was. So you were, you were having out. this thought of she could die in four years from the time you married her. Two to four years, yeah. I mean, really, she was really sick. So she okay. had recovered from about at death at twenty five. We were twenty six when we met. Okay. And um, I didn't know this at the time, but she almost had passed that year before, and she had gone on oxygen all day long for the first time. So she had this like, I need to get married, and I'm. 25 just like most 25 year olds cared about what she looked like and mm -hmm. she's like how am i gonna go in public with oxygen on him and it was really weird to see a girl like that she was cute you know cystics don't look sick they look like you and i yeah and then she's got this oxygen on so mentally she sort of went through this sort of challenge of i'm gonna get off this oxygen they told her she'd never come off again it's too much lung damage and she did come off so luckily she met me, the shallow Hal, when she didn't have <laughs> oxygen on. Okay. But she had oxygen on at night, and uh -huh. I obviously, I knew that she had a, a disease pretty early. I mean, within the first few dates, I knew that she had something. But Right. Um, but no, but she met me, and she was able to, and then, then she sort of went through some self-doubt of, what am I going to add to a relationship? I'm so yeah. busy maintaining this, this disease. And I just, I don't know. Once I made the decision, it was it was easy to stay focused and stay positive. Oh wow, that's pretty incredible. Um, and so, you know, you go, you guys are married now, and then you guys decided to have kids. Obviously, yeah. So before we got married at a family shower, my sister um, asked me, "How are you going to have kids?" And we couldn't adopt because statistically, she was going to be gone at eight when the kids are eighteen. Right. At least that's what we had read. We didn't really go too far much beyond that. We knew that she was, her lung function was pretty low, that she, we thought that she couldn't bear a child, and we were correct in that. She probably physically could have gotten pregnant, but if it didn't kill her, it would have significantly shortened her life. Really? Okay. So at least that's what the physicians were telling her. So she was talking to me about that we might have, we could try surrogacy just when we were engaged, just very, you know, clouds talk you know just like what how would we have kids that kind of stuff yeah and my sister was like i'd do that for you and just offhandedly threw it out there and i'm like yeah right um, that's not something you ask your sister <laughs> yeah right <laughs> i would carry your your child she did she ended up carrying the twins we really? okay. we immediately so we got married in february we were at the reproductive reproductive clinic consulting in march or april that she was soon, talking yeah. to anybody and everybody that would listen about how she was going to have kids. And, um, she was on a mission. I mean, she was, and I was just there on the ride. I mean, she, it wasn't just to have kids though. It was, she was like, this is why I'm here. I'm here to be a mom. I'm here to raise children. And that's my dream. That's what I want to do. Mm. And I would ask her, well, you know, you have your nail license. Do you want to go, you want to finish college? Cause she had, had to drop out a couple times because of illness. Yeah. She's like, yeah, I, I do want to finish college at some point, but I, I, I know I'm supposed to be a mom. And so we had like, you know, we interviewed people. We, we started with the surrogate. We had a lot of headwinds with, um, knowing whether she was doing the, the, the shots or not, but I'd take her at her word, but it didn't work out. And, um, there was some criminal activity on, that surrogate's part with regard oh, to, wow. she was the secretary at my um, father-in-law's office. And so okay. there was some pretty 
steep critical act activity that was going on that we didn't know about okay that came to light in the middle of the surrogacy process so we had to decide do we continue yeah or do we re we retract we decided to continue and julie maintained till the day she died like that needed to happen because they figured out the right amount of drug to give julie to drop okay. enough eggs and right yeah so um it didn't work uh two three times and then um, on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, we always disagreed about this, what day it was. <laughs> yeah. My sister was like, we have something, we have an announcement. We're like, you're pregnant. <laughs> and she just starts crying. She's like, no, I've been, um, I've been thinking about this for a year since you guys said you were going to do this. And she's like, Brigham and I, her husband, of course, his name's Brigham, <laughs> LDS name. <laughs> Great guy. I mean, amazing man. But he and my sister, Allison, were basically thinking about it and praying about it for that year and going into our, our temple um, where we worship and just basically came to it on their own. I, I remember my wife asking me about that conversation a few times when we were in the process of trying and failing with the first surrogate and I was like yeah but how do you ask your sister to do that I'm not going to ask her and she's yeah. like I agree so she came to us and um, her husband was like you'll get pregnant I guarantee it we're a baby factory like as soon as we pull the goalkeeper we have kids Yeah. so we were like well we'll see and so obviously we have twins now and my sister she carried them through 33 weeks so we had them early so we had okay. NICU babies. That was a little intense, but wow, yeah. it was a good um, training ground for two weeks to kind of get them on a schedule. And it's the only positive light to having twins early. It was really hard. Um, and then she pumped. So she's like, she's on a straight path to to God now. She's done enough. I think yeah, she can really. say, I'm good. <laughs> right. like, Absolutely. Bore these four twins and yeah. then pumped wow. for six or seven months Jeez. just so they'd have breast milk. And she says so she could lose weight, but it was, what an she amazing was trying sister, to do the right huh? thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Very cool. So, um, so that you guys had to have just been just blown away. Like this is actually happening. Yeah. I mean, you it was know, happening Especially for so Julie. Fast. I bet she was like, yeah. This is what I've been waiting for. And yeah. Yeah. So she had had, she had had blessings as a, a young girl and, <clears throat> um, as a young woman that she was going to be a mother and her parents had had these kids. She and James went in a time where you were told your kids are going to die at like pre puberty. So they were sort of like biting their nails, but believing it, but sort of right. at the same time, like, how's this going to happen? Like, yeah. how's this going to play out? So yeah, it was a lifelong sort of dream if you will yeah like it seemed impossible for them and for her um and i think uh yeah we were it was going fast we couldn't believe that we had these little twins and they were happy and healthy and we were just starting our life it was yeah. cool and at this time is julie's health still good i mean well so when i met her she had been in the hospital she cystics will go in for two weeks at a time for Okay. antibiotic and, and physiological, uh, clean out, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was in, I think three to three to four times. Okay. Yeah. That year. And then it just progressed. So the boys in, that was in 2008, January, we had them. And then in the end of 2010, 
um, her doctor at the University of Utah, Ted Lill, who's done a ton of research on when to send patients to lung transplant, sat her down and said, you've got an 80% chance of dying in the next five years, so you've got to make a decision now. So he was the, he was and probably still is the authority on when to, when's the right time. When are they sick enough to justify it, but healthy right. enough to survive it? Because it's oh, an absolute, yeah. complete, it's probably one of the most rigorous transplants that they I, do. I don't I know medically, yeah, but wow. you op- they open you up like a car. They don't open you up down the middle. They open you up across, and they just dissect you, basically, and really? put you on bypass. And So she had to go through figuring out if she wanted to do that. And I talked to her mom the other night um, randomly about this, but she felt a loyalty to her lungs. She felt like they had carried her so long, and she was sort of, so it was kind of interesting, like does, yeah. like I was like, get rid of those old things, yeah, right. get some new ones, but it doesn't work that way. I mean, you can't, it, you know, you trade one set of problems for the other. So it was a hard decision, but she made it. Um, went through the workup when she was just so sick. She had the she had the flu and she was admitted, but she was admitted. But the point I I was trying to make was that we were in eight times that year, so four months out of that year, she was in the hospital. Wow. So I was, since the boys were born, I've been in a quasi single dad position because of these. Because of what was she was an incredible yeah. mother when right. she was home, but I had to figure it out and I had to get the village to help me out. I mean, people in yeah. my neighborhood, definitely my parents and family have been there. Yeah, you mentioned to me family. that uh, you know, two the two people you admire the most in your life is your mom and your dad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah my mom. Um, I mean, I, it's just how it is in my family and then going through having my children losing my wife and even today she sees there every week whenever I had a lot of people hands on deck when Julie was getting really sick and when she died and um she just said look it's they need me I feel like I'm supposed to do it same way that my sister was I mean the apple doesn't fall far from the tree they feel like I was born to do this kind of thing. Yeah, right. That's something I take as a very sacred um, gift because I don't ever want to take advantage of that at all. And I think um, you could easily because they feel obligated, but and it's on their own, on their own accord. But she serves and comes over, and she's like, they need to have me because they need consistency, they need the same person, and they need to be safe. Right. Because this is where you know. This is where kids get taken advantage of. Is for sure. Yeah. When there's everybody, all you know, no one would want to say that, but that's really what happens. People get abused yeah. when there's when there's opportunity to be, to abuse. So they've got a really protected environment, and um, I am eternally grateful for that. Yeah, I bet. Wow, that's amazing that you have that situation. Yeah, and she, not many people get that. No, most people don't. Um, I think what I've learned is she. She serves like it's there's nothing else going on, and she has a really busy life. She runs a dental office, and she's always helping people around in her neighborhood, and obviously taking care of us. And it's amazing, though. She, and if she can't, she just says I can't, and I know she can't. And there's no, right. there's no emotional tension. I mean, I'm sure she feels sometimes a little bit. She seems like she feels stressed that she can't. But I'm like, you've done enough. Like, yeah, I'll find somebody. Sure. We'll work with, obviously, Julie's family helps out, too, from time to time, yeah. which is really amazing. 
So did Julie, did you guys go, did, did you pursue getting the new lungs? Yeah, so we got a transplant. She so only did waited, the transplant, we only, okay. we only waited, once she did the workup to qualify, if you will, and get all the tests done, we only waited six weeks, which was incredible. We were told it to be a year to two years. You know, when there's three or 4,000 livers on the transplant list in Utah, there's four to 10 on the lung transplant list. Oh, okay. It's very selective. Um, and there's a, a scoring system that basically, for a lot of different reasons, it's either, it's not just who's sickest, it's also who's going to benefit the most. And So yeah, a lot of factors play into it. We had a lot of factors it. play yeah. into it. And we actually were the second choice for her set of lungs. Someone went in, got on the table, they drew the blood, they, it didn't, it didn't, the blood didn't coagulate or whatever. I don't know what the tests are, but right. essentially that there, it wasn't compatible. And so, and they take into size, like they take a CT scan, they look at okay. your size of lungs. And so we, we, um, we benefited from a harrowing experience of someone that I don't know who was in their mid to early twenties who died in a motorcycling accident up in Northern oh, Utah. Wow. And, um, I don't talk about that enough, but, uh, it changed our life. And I, I now know what that family went through and it's, um, yeah, I don't know what it's like to lose a child. And I think about that with my boys, like, man, what did they yeah, suffer? Sure. But it was cool because, I mean, if they're ever listening or if they've ever heard, in that OR, there was like four or five families. It was a Saturday night, and um, we were the only ones there, and we all were receiving, or our family member in the OR was receiving different organs of this individual. And so this one individual who had passed in a tragic accident, a, his life carried on through four or five more people. Wow, who are, yeah. I'm sure so, several are still, I mean, I, I don't know about the others. Those were the emergent, you know, the right. heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, the pancreas, the, the, the vital organs that were needed. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just my little plug, like if you're not a donor, become a donor because it's, what are you going to do with it? It's, yeah. it's just your corpse. Yeah. Cares. And to be able to think that you, you, you know, a part life. of you can help someone else yeah. live their life. It's not just them. It's their parents. It's the grandparents. It's yeah. the kids. It's, there's so many lives that you can affect. Man. So yeah, I agree. Be a donor. Be a donor. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So then when did, so you had a third child. Yeah. Right? So she, in the recovery, she's, I'm laughing. She's. She was so matter of fact and funny about life. She's like, so when can I have a baby? And the doc was like, are you shut? She's like, shut the hell up. So yeah, right. at her. She's like, what are you thinking? And really, what was she thinking? But she was, and it wasn't blind, you know, action. She felt this like, sort of pull to, to be a Go mom. She's like, look, kid. I am a mom, but she's like, I want to do that. And so she said, don't talk to me for a year. Which get to you to a year, and she laughed, and she said, "Okay, I won't. I won't ask you for a year." <laughs> but that year came, and she asked that at that year mark, and we finally started getting going, like around 15, 16 months post transplant, and um, we we weren't, you know, we were trying and not succeeding. We were practicing, and um, yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't getting anywhere, and so she was pressing me. We got to go to the got to go to the, the reproductive clinic where we had gone for the, the twins. And, um, I was, a, I was a little reluctant. I was like, are you sure are we forcing 
the hand of God here? Are we yeah. forcing, I mean, I'm like just kind of a pragmatic dude approach, you know, like what's right. What are we thinking here? You're transplanted. You're a year and a half post. What are we? And she's like, the thing, the thing that I kind of came around and agreed with her on was she's like, look, I can live with trying and not succeeding, but trying to me, is it going all the way to in vitro once? And then if it doesn't work, then we can, we'll back away. Right. right. I, I do have these three, these two boys. Um, ironically about a year before that, my sister, or no, it would have been like three years before that. My sister, the same one that carried the twins had a baby and we were walking through the Riverton hospital to go see him. Julie and I, uh, see him and her and, I randomly had this thought, like, I'm going to have another boy. And this was before she was transplanted. I said, hey, if we ever had another kid, I don't know how we would, but I think I want to name him Charlie. And she's like, Charlie, why? I'm like, I just think of this, this little roly-poly, like, busy little kid rolling around and right. running around. I'm like, I just like that name. I'm like, it was my great-grandpa, Charles Snellgrove's name, and uh-huh. I just love it. And and it is gone. Well, that that impression or that thought, um, was in the back of my mind when she was talking to me about having a baby. And so I said, okay, I can, I can support that. We'll do a few rounds of, um, artificial insemination. And I was like, I don't want to pay for a feature again. That was so expensive. Okay. And, yeah. Um, anyway, and I, it, there's, that's a whole backstory of, of not having enough. And it just, it, the Lord, God provided really, it worked out on that deal with the kids, but um, we, we went forward in the process and we found out she had stage four endometriosis, which is like trying to get pregnant with a concrete bowl, you know, <laughs> it just nothing's going right. to stick to that uterus. So yeah. she had to have the surgery and, um, we tried with an artificial insemination. And on the fourth try, I was starting the job, a, a version of the job that I'm in now where I was traveling the very first week and I was booking my travel and it was like Seattle to Irvine to Houston to home. And I had this thought, just go Seattle to home, home to Houston. And she, she ovulated like clockwork every 28 days or four weeks or whatever. And that weekend she was supposed to, I was leaving on a Monday. She was supposed to ovulate on a Thursday before nothing happened all weekend. So she's losing well, not losing it, but she's like, what's going to happen? What if you're in yeah. Seattle and I ovulate? I'm like, it's Seattle. It's a two hour flight. I'll just come home. Right. And she's like, they'll let you do that. I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> they'll let me do that. So she didn't. And I came home and I was home for 18 hours. And that was when she happened to ovulate. And we called the clinic in the morning. They're like, can you come at four? She's like, no, he's departing at 2 PM. When can we come now? They're like, we don't do it in the morning. I mean, all these things were being piled on, Yeah, right. but we got it. We obviously went and did the procedure. And then four or five weeks later, we were pregnant with Charlie. Right on. So she carried him without a hitch. There was really, yeah, they were so worried and as rightfully so, and trying to protect her and transplant centers um they want good outcomes because it, it helps them yeah. justify their ability to transplant so they don't want to take those risks <clears throat> you know ucla or stanford can take more risk because they transplant more patients than say a university of utah who transplants fewer patients so until they get their numbers up over the years that it's just the way it is but okay so yeah we we they were worried we watched her like crazy high risk ob and 
everything. The only reason she she um, delivered early, she delivered him at 35 weeks, was because her kidney function was going down, and that was that was her protective. She needs her kidneys for for post transplant. You you got to take a lot of drugs, a lot right. of um, medications, so you need your kidneys to survive. Right. Yeah. So they delivered the baby, and he came home two days later. He was it was like a normal, just a normal, and she pregnancy. was she was in heaven. I mean, she, she was like that with my twins, but this was bearing the child. This was breastfeeding the child. This was, and he was a light. He was just a happy little soul. And if you ever meet him, he's just, he still is. He's just full of joy. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, um, you started a a blog called uh, lungs for Julie, correct? Yeah. Lungs for Julie.com. Right. And was this, was this your way of kind of, I don't know, almost therapizing yourself as you're going through this. I didn't think this. of it that way, but yeah, it was therapy. Yeah. Um, at the time, I thought it's a way to, um, well, my cousin, Paul Cardall, he was a heart transplant patient. He was a few years post at the time. And he was like, you're going to, you need to get on social media and you need to start fielding prayers. He said, you need this support. He said, you'll have your family support. And he said, I think what got me to tick or flip was because I was sort of anti-social media and again, anti-counterculture sort of (laughs) stuff, but he's like, you need it and you need, and people need to know about it. You guys have a really amazing life thus far. We'd had the twins so far. And he said, you need to share it and you need to field, field prayers. And he said, honestly, it's an easy way to update everybody. And that's what I think clicked for me. I'm like, yeah. Oh yeah, this will be good. I won't have to call anybody when Yeah, I won't have to tell change. the same thing a hundred times. Yeah. And so uh, and it it did I found a joy in writing. It's unfortunate I didn't find it until I was, you know, in my early thirties, but I've always written in my journal like throughout the year, maybe right. a handful of times during the year when just when I'm having significant thoughts or impressions. But um this was really where I kind of discovered my love for expression and and, and bringing humor into it and, and people would, people would tell me, um, that they would cry and laugh in the same post reading. And that was kind of what I, that was my life. Right. Laughing all the time, having some really, I mean, it was lots of emotion all the time yeah. just because of what's going on. And so it's not all butterflies and, and rainbows over at my house. And it hasn't been, it's, there's some dark gloomy parts of each day, but yeah, we just try to focus on the rainbows that are in the distance yeah that's great well um so talk about you know so julie passed away it's been a couple years now two and a half years yeah yeah yep. let's talk a little bit about that i mean i know there's a lot around that but, yeah uh, yeah time wise let's just give us you know when you knew that the, the time was coming that she was going to pass yes yeah, so i you were going through i think and i feel really strongly that you can believe in the impossible and and have the dichotomous pragmatic knowledge of what could happen yeah. but not be where not thinking about not sort of acknowledging the bad like yeah she could die and she might die but believing and living like she's not going to so in the case of an addiction or in the case of any challenge people say would say to me you need to prepare for the worst and i'm like well, what does that look like you want me to sit and plan for her death and I mean 
I guess there's some thinking in that that would be sound, but I didn't want to go there. I'm like, she's not dead, so I'm not going to bury her until she's dead. And I'm, right. you know, so, um, and I really was following her lead because she, she was so optimistic. But at one point she was like, a couple months before, she's like, look, if I die, I just want you to know, I don't want you to be pissed at me or ticked at me. I'm like, what are you talking about? Right. She's like, I just, I should be dead. This is kind of ridiculous that I'm still alive. And I just don't want you to feel like you didn't, we didn't give it our all. Like she didn't want me to be disappointed in her. Mm. And she's like, I'm basically alive. Cause I'm just giving it my last efforts for you and the boys. That's, and you know, I, I would be lying if I didn't say that I wasn't worried. I mean, I thought about her funeral. I I probably thought about it once a week since I met her. Cause it was just, it's staring me in the face. Yeah. Um, but I didn't dwell. I I got really good at not dwelling on it. And she would, she would had a lot of anxiety and she would worry. And then she would always find some silver lining that we could look to. Right. And so I just kind of followed that lead. And so when she got close to death, the day that she died, she was like, it's time. And I was like, hold on. And I really pressed her. And I, I think her mom was in the room. I maybe talked to her just, she and I, but I was like, what about this? What if we did this? What if they, they should have done that. And she's like, Dave, you know, it's like repentance. You just have to go with the decision that you made. Yeah. It's over. It's gone. Don't ever look back. She's like, if I, cause we, we had struggled with, should we finish chemo or not? Cause she was like, my lungs are getting destroyed. My transplanted lungs. And I don't have cancer in me right now. I want to stop. And everyone, including myself, were like, don't stop. Right. This yeah. is aggressive lymphoma that's post transplant and you're gonna you're gonna die from cancer. And she's like, So I was really second guessing that decision a year ago. I was like, We made the wrong decision and she this is the day before she's already decided she's gonna pass. And she's talking to me like just like you and I are talking. She's like, Dave if I would have stopped chemo and I was sitting here with cancer throughout my body, you'd be saying the same thing about chemo. Yeah. So she's like, you have to, you got to just let it go. And she had come into that hospital stay and said, and like for whatever, for a lot of different reasons, they weren't administering antibiotics because that she had just gotten discharged. And so she was like, I was really feeling like, man, they, they could have done this. They could have done that. And she was just putting to bed all of those feelings that are very real and very raw that most people don't get to sort through for sometimes years after the person dies that we could have done something different. And those do creep in from time to time. Sure. I do think about them. Yeah. But, uh, she just, she just said we can, it'll be fine. You, you made the decision and it's, it's over. So when she died, um, I, I had a lot of peace. I mean, I was, I knew it was her choice. I knew that she loved me and I knew that she was setting me forward. I knew I, I was on this trajectory that I started with my, my family with Julie from the time that she died from the time before she died. In fact, I grieved her death months before I wouldn't, I believed that she'd live 40 years, even up until the last day. But I, remember I just thought of this last night. I woke up in a nightmare crying, like in my dream, which you don't really do usually. And I remember waking up and just comforting me and say, Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to die, honey. And 
she knew she was in the edge. She was the edge. And she wow. was like, if I don't die now, I could die in three months. I should have died four years ago. It could be in three years from now, but it's today. So we just had sort of just like buck up and deal with it. <laughs> I'm leaving. So yeah. I love you. She's like, I don't want to leave. I don't want to give up, but my body's shutting down. I but I know it. that it's coming. this is the situation. Yeah. yeah. So after that, I, I kind of sprung into this sort of dad life where I think I was cooped up for a while. You know, I was serving her and helping her a lot and she was giving me a really great life in its yeah. own right. Um, but we, and still do, we started to just travel and do stuff all the time. And I kind of created this outdoor culture that I, I had a little bit when I was married to Julie, but I couldn't have, and I never longed for it. It just kind of evolved into this, right? this family life that I have with me and my boys now. And it's, it's amazing. It's really great despite the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned in something you sent me earlier, um, you know, you're, you know, you're finding joy in the struggle, you yeah. know, uh, even now, like with the day, you know, having three kids and you're working full time and, yeah. you know, you've got all, you know, family helping you and things like that. But you mentioned that you find this joy. How, how are you doing that? Um, I think a lot of it goes back to prayer for me. I mean, I pray about, I wasn't super disciplined, like regimented, like I kneel down, the right. but I always prayed as a kid and I always prayed. I, I actually, going back to your original questions of this interview, as a kid, I learned to pray when I was really physically not feeling well. And I was in a situation, social situation that was going to be really embarrassing. Yeah. I had to pray and I, I learned to believe in the absolute impossible. Like I was right. without getting gross thinking I was going to crap my pants. Right. And I'm at a girl's house or I'm at skiing or I'm whatever right. at a party yeah. or whatever. And I'm like, I got to get to a bathroom and I'm pleading with God to help me to get there. And every yeah. time it works. So I think right. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that that's, that's at the core of it is yeah. prayer. But I don't know. I mean, I don't think that optimism is truly born. I think we all have it in us to believe in in good things right, when yeah. bad things are around us. Yeah. And there's this false notion that optimism is you're born with it. I was born. I have always been an optimist and I was that way as a child. And my environment definitely influenced that drastically. Yeah. Help develop it. Yeah. Father and mother and grandfather and family. However, um, it's a practice. You just got to practice it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have a, you know, a philosophy and it's something and it's a principle I teach my clients to this day is life happens for you. Yeah. You know, like not that. to you. Yeah. And you think about, you know, because you went through that at such a young age, it made you kind of really dig deep yeah. and really start relying on, you know, your faith and your, in, in praying and things yeah. like that. Had you not gone through that, you may have just been like, oh, you know, prayer, you know, no big deal. Yeah. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't. I think I would have learned prayer. I mean, ultimately life would have happened for me. I would have yeah. had it not been the disease. You're exactly right. But I think it just got reinforced. So if right. it didn't happen, then it would happen later. Right. Yeah. Like life has a way of sort of teaching you no matter what you do, exactly. you're going to get yeah. taught. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's, I don't think it's me. It's, yeah. I think I see myself 
in other people and I see yeah. them in me and you know, my hope is if, it, if there's anybody out there listening to this, they think, you know, I, I can do that. That's what I would think when people would, you know, get up in church and talk about having kids and we didn't have kids and we were really trying and spending a lot of money, tens of thousands of dollars that we frankly didn't have at the time. I saw it as like, if they can, then we can, Yeah. you know, why do they have more right or right. And sometimes things didn't work out. I mean, my wife died. I didn't want her to die. It didn't work out, Yeah. but it's okay. Like my life's, my life's good. It's yeah. different. Sure. And I think you go through some dark moments, like just about two weeks ago, I finally audibly said, I just want you to come home. And I was, I was pissed. I was, you know, so long I've been like, I can't go there. I'm not, that's not part of my, yeah. because I want to be optimistic. I want to live for my kids. I want to show them how to be, but I'm, I'm in my backyard watching my kids thinking, this is bullshit. Why, where is she? Why aren't you here watching these and enjoying this with me? Right. So I think that's really healthy to go through that sort of, like, it's not, you should focus on the positive, but it's good to like let out the negative. Well, because it's there and you're just being real. Yeah. 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 If you try to pretend it's not there. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. It's healthy to let that out. Yeah. 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 And it was good. And then, um, I, I said, I, I obviously went to my knees and went to my bed and cried really hard and said, look, I know you can't be here. And I'm, I'm very at peace with her not being here. I'm, I'm at peace with her being the first part of my family life, not the definition of my family life. Right. You know, I'm, I'm going to have, my family's going to continue with yeah. someone else in, in the future. I don't know who, <clears throat> and I've always been very at peace with that. But I do, I did ask that she, I'm like, I need to know right now that you're around and I'm going to ask a lot because that's the thing she promised me the day she left. She's like, I'll never leave you. Right. And it wasn't, you know, it just, I needed that. And I said, I need to know you're around. I don't, I would like to FaceTime you and talk to you as a friend. Right. Just so she could like, either smack me into shape with what I'm <laughs> yeah. acting like with right. dating or, or, you know, if I'm acting like a, an, an idiot dad or whatever, but more just so I could have that friendship back and just someone who knows, you don't realize how well, you know, your spouse, like you, like people that are having married marital problems, like there's gotta be some significant abuse or drugs, or obviously you've got to leave for those reasons. But, if you're thinking about divorce or splitting, I'll just say this. You don't know how well you know each other and it's not starting over. You're just starting a new chapter. You're not starting over. You don't get to start over. It's right. you're in your twenties or thirties. You've, it's a new step. So having her gone, um, I needed to know that she was around and the next morning, the next morning, Jack woke up and he's like, I had a dream about mom. I was FaceTiming her. And then she was in our world. I'm like, that's interesting. And then Ben on a separate accord was downstairs. He's like, mom was in my dream last night. And that's really why I wanted to know she was there was because I wanted her to enjoy the children. It was right. sort of, I feel like it was her way of saying, I, I am enjoying them. And logically I believe that. And emotionally I believe that. 
but I'm, I'm going to keep asking for signs because I'm yeah. just that person. I mean, sure. I wish that I had the faith to say, I don't need that, but I need to know right. that my kid's mother is in their life. Is in their I life. need to know that. Yeah. And, um, that's an interesting thing to navigate for my future. But right yeah. now that's, that's where I am. Cause I'm single. I'm, I'm just, I'm alone. Yeah. With them. Wow. Amazing. And it's amazing how you're handling this. And, and, you know, I can tell just by even talking to you here and people who are listening to this, that you are very positive and, but you're also real about this whole thing and, uh, can only imagine, I mean, I've never, uh, you know, I'm married and I can't imagine what that would be like, but, uh, you know, if you could give any advice to um, our listeners, especially those who might be struggling or who have lost a spouse or, or a child, or what, what advice could you give them um, to help them maybe through this difficult time that they might be going through? Um, for those who have lost, I had a long time to obviously, get, she landed the plane for me, if you will. And I, I believe that love is very powerful and it's not, this love that we talk about in the movies is far reaching, much farther reaching than just the spouse and husband wife relationship. It's, it's our family members. It's our grandparents. It's those who have gone before us. And I'll just say that I was afforded a lot of things to help me move forward. Mm -hmm. But I believe that your deceased loved one would tell you the exact same things that I've said today that, yeah, you know, I want you to love again or whatever, you know, I want you to be happy and not just sort of in platitudes, like they genuinely want us to look forward. And I've right. sensed that since she's gone, like she's very happy that I'm, that I'm just living. And, yeah. um, that's what keeps me going. Yeah. And, um, don't discount prayer. Even if you've never prayed before, try it. I mean, you don't have to be some holy roly to pray. Anybody can pray. Yeah. And even if you start out just thinking it's meditation, that's healthy. We know that sure. meditation is healthy. Yeah. There's a lot of science around meditation. There's a lot of religious ties to meditation. Um but yeah, I think I think having supplication and just taking time to think. I mean, I'm going 90 miles an hour every day. I don't <laughs> right. I don't stop. Yeah. But I I do end up praying and, and it helps. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think if you've lost someone, they absolutely love you and they are absolutely happy for you and it's okay to be ticked. It's okay to swear about it. Even yeah. if you're a good, good <laughs> yeah. old Mormon boy, good old LDS boy like me, but it's okay. It's, it's totally completely normal. I mean, um, I think in our culture, in the LDS culture and even just any faith culture, there's sort of this like the face of optimism, but when you go home, there's this dark side of it. I think it's okay to be optimistic and ticked off at the same time or upset or disappointed. Right. Um, but just don't live in that ladder. Yeah. I mean, there's why it doesn't, it doesn't right. help your life. It just, sure. Yeah. You know. Well, that's great advice. And I couldn't agree more, you know, people who have passed away, you know, I always ask the question to my clients, would they want you to be happy or sad? And it's a real simple question. And I always know the answer. Well, they want me to be happy. Yeah. Well, let's give them what they want then. Yeah. And when we give them what they want, I really believe we feel a connection with that person even more powerfully than, than you otherwise would. So I love your advice. I think that's great Yeah. Uh, for all of us. Um, so 
I mean, I know there's so much more to your story, but uh, if people want to reach out to you yeah. and get to know you better, we did mention your blog. It's uh, lungsforjulie.com. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, it's still, I don't, it's not active. I'm not writing on okay. that blog. So, but they can get to know more about yeah. what you went through. And, yeah, I'd go, just yeah. go back to 2010 and read, read the okay. story. It's a good little story. Yeah. And yeah. How is that the best way if they wanted to even maybe ask you a personal question? How would they? Yeah, no, I mean, you're welcome to email me d b e n h e n at yahoo.com um you can call me i'll give you my number <laughs> I, I don't care i definitely want to share my uh what i've learned right yeah and and if i can help even just one person off this it's it's worth it because yeah. people are worth it everyone's you're all worth it it's uh i've been helped by a lot of people i've had a lot of people lift me up and i want to give back so yeah there's that or um at db at d b e n h e n um on instagram if you want to just if you want to creep and just watch <laughs> it's not creepy it's yeah. what we all do if you're interested For in sure. what my life is like and how my yeah what life is like with us as a single dad just follow me there it's all public it's all open i don't it's just okay very cool yeah it's all out there well, Dave, thank you so much for spending your morning with me. Um, what a great way to start a Monday in yeah, the week. Thanks for inviting um, me. I'm inspired by listening to you and, and you know, just, again, how you carry your, yourself through this difficult time and how you're raising your children. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for that, uh, for being willing to open up and share with our listeners your story. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's an honor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there you go, listeners. Another powerhouse again. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. I just love what that I get to do these podcasts because I just I'm I'm just sitting here like I'm learning from everyone every single week, and I'm just going, man, this is so cool. Um, but yeah, listeners, please listen to to Dave's story. Share it with anyone you know who might be struggling. Um, if you would go to iTunes and please write a review. The more reviews we get, the more Dave's story is going to get out to more people. Uh, it's going to help us trend on iTunes, and uh, we want that. So, um, again, this is Todd Sylvester with the Todd Sylvester's Inspired Belief Cast. And Dave, once again, thank you for your time. Thank you.